Okay. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter number one, please. And we're going to look together at all 11 verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In our journey through Ezra, we have commented on how Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. And I think that's important to note because the theme and the events of Ezra are moving right into Nehemiah chapter 1. So where we leave off in Ezra chapter 9, we pick right up in Nehemiah chapter 1. Let, let me give you a quick summary since it's been several weeks uh, since our time together in Ezra. Here's, here's what's happening. In 587 B.C., God allowed the enemies of Israel, the Babylonians, under the direction of King Nebuchadnezzar, to take the Lord's people into captivity. He allowed that because of 400 years of disobedience by Israel. 
For 400 years, they had experienced spiritual decline as they continually disregarded the holiness of God and they let idolatry and immorality dominate them as a people. So as a means of judgment on his people, God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem and take the Jews into captivity where they would spend the next 70 years in exile. And that's when we came to Ezra chapter 1. In Ezra chapter 1, through the Persian dominance of Babylon, God provided an opportunity. At the helm was King Cyrus. He destroyed Nebuchadnezzar's throne. He took, uh, I guess, priority, if you will, over the Jewish people. And through all of that transition, God provided an opportunity for his people, the Jews, to return to Jerusalem and experience a reviving that they so desperately needed. This return would take place in waves, and it focused on different elements along the way. The first wave happened in 539 B.C. It was led by a man named Zerubbabel. About 50,000 Jews left Persia and returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, And together they focused on rebuilding the temple of God and ultimately uh, the city of Jerusalem. They began by rebuilding the altar and returning the Jews back to the uh, sacrificial system of worship. And then they uh, moved on into rebuilding the temple. And so that was the focus of the first wave of exiles that left Persia and returned to Jerusalem. Eighty years after that, a second wave of Jews returned. This time, it was under the leadership of Ezra. And only about 5,000 Jews followed him that were in the second wave. It was a new generation. They quickly discovered that while the temple had been rebuilt in Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, the teaching of God's law needed to be returned to its preeminent place. And that's what Ezra's primary role was. His key role was to return what exiles went with him to Jerusalem and to preach God's word and to take the law of God and establish a right structure for the people of God. He he wanted to help the people repent of their sin and return to the holiness of God in their lives. And that's how we ended Ezra chapter 9. Now, we open Nehemiah chapter 1. Artaxerxes is still king of Persia. And it's been approximately 20 years, give or take a few, since Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. So Ezra and Nehemiah are what we would call contemporaries. 20 years have gone by since that second wave under Ezra. And it's been about a hundred years since the first wave under Zerubbabel. Now, coming to chapter one, we don't really know much about Nehemiah. He's not a priest, he's not a prophet. All that is clear toward the end of the chapter is that he is a career man, a Jewish layman, if you will, who's living in Persia about. 800 miles away from Jerusalem. 
and he's living in Persia with the remaining exiles who have not yet returned. We find out here at the beginning of the chapter, he has a brother. His brother's name is Hanani. And Hanani does live in Jerusalem. And in verse 2, Hanani comes to Persia for a visit. There's a phrase in verse 2 that grabbed my attention as I'm reading through chapter 1, and we see Hanani's visit with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, in verse 2, says to his brother Hanani, I asked them, I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. I asked them, Nehemiah said, about the people of God. I asked them about their condition. I asked them about the state of life for the Jews in Jerusalem. I asked them about all that was taking place. Here's a man, for all we know at this point, has not even been to Jerusalem. He's part of a new generation of Jews living 800 miles away from the land of God in Persia. A Jewish man raised, living, and working in a Persian world, as we will find out. He's actually working in King Artaxerxes' court. And here, he is asking about the people of God. He's asking about the people of God. I think we learned something very quickly about Nehemiah here, and that is his heart was with God's people. He may have been 800 miles away, but his heart was in the land of God's people. His heart was in the city of God. His heart was with the people of God. He he cares about them. He's concerned about them. He's interested in how they're doing. He asked them, how are the people of God? I wonder tonight, what interests you? What concerns you? Here, Nehemiah's concern and interest was fixed on the people of God. And it's on the heels of this question that a report is given to Nehemiah. Verse 3. He asked them, here's what they said. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble. Not only are they in great trouble, but they are in great shame. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are destroyed by Fire. Four words that describe the state of affairs among the people of God. Trouble, shame, brokenness, and destruction. Now, friends, this is a tragic report. This is news that Nehemiah wasn't expecting. It was a huge blow to his soul. And it's not just about the walls. I I know so often when we think about Nehemiah, first thing that comes to mind, walls. 
Nehemiah, walls, Jonah, well. Moses, commandments. Noah, boat. Shadrach, never mind, never mind. It's not just about the walls. Yes, it was a big deal that the walls during this time had been broken down because that meant during this period of history, a city without walls was vulnerable, without any defense, in a world of hostile takeover. But the people, the people who are called survivors here in verse 3, they were in great trouble. They were in great shame. They're distressed. They're depressed. They're demoralized. And honestly, they're on the verge of disappearing. It wasn't just about the walls that made this so tragic. It was about the people. The people. One Author said it like this, broken walls meant frightening insecurity and serious economic deprivation. But the depressed people within the city were infinitely more important than its shattered walls. And if we miss anything tonight, let's at least get this up front before we go any further in our study of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is not just about Walls. It's not just about building projects. It's about God's glory being trampled on. It's about God's people being broken down. It's upon receiving this news that we get to the heart of our text, which I've called a godly reaction to a tragic report. A godly reaction to a tragic report. The tragedy is, is that things are not well in Jerusalem. They're in trouble. They're undergoing distress and shame. The walls are broken down. Everything's destroyed by fire. This is the tragic report. But notice the godly reaction. We see that reaction beginning in verse number four. It says, as soon as I heard these words. As soon as I heard these words, as soon as I heard the news, as soon as I received the report, we're now dealing with a man's reaction. Reaction. Nehemiah, specifically, his reaction. And his reaction to the worst possible news that he could hear about the state of God's people in Jerusalem. Reaction. Now, let me just say here tonight as we're diving into this that the way in which you and I react to circumstances tells a great deal about us. We've heard it said before, I am not responsible for other people's actions. That's largely true. But what I am responsible for is my reactions. My reactions. You may not can control this evening what somebody might say to you do to you or gesture to you on the way home. But you can and I can control my reactions to those circumstances. So that, that's what we're dealing with now. It's, it's not Nehemiah's issue necessarily that, that the walls are broken down and the tragedy among the people, but, but now we have an issue that Nehemiah has in front of him. That's how he's going to react to this tragedy. 
and how he reacts to this tragedy is going to tell us a great deal about Nehemiah himself. And I say it again to our hearts. How we react to things tell a great deal about us. Those reactions reveal the spiritual temperature of our heart. How we react to those who've offended us. How we react to the news of sinful dominance around us. How we react to those whom we know and love who have fallen victim to Satan's attacks. How we react to any of these circumstances reveal the spiritual temperature of our heart. Well, let's look at Nehemiah's reactions, learn some things. One, I note here that he was overwhelmed with brokenness and compassion. He was overwhelmed with brokenness and compassion. Verse 4, as soon as I heard the words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Think about this. Maybe you've been there. He's so overwhelmed by what he's heard, he can't even stand. The, the picture here is of one collapsing without strength. I just gotta, I just gotta, I gotta sit for a minute. I can't believe what I'm hearing. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Surely this, this can't be true. This can't be happening. He, he falls down and he begins to weep over the news that he's just heard. The state of God's people have moved him to tears. And this again reveals the depth of his concern for God's glory among his people. It the report, the shame, the tragedy, the trouble, the broken walls, the destruction, it, 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 it made him cry. It made him cry. He sat down and he cried. 800 miles away having never even been there himself. And it moved him to tears. Now the Lord knows my heart tonight. I have no desire to ever manipulate our church to do anything. And I am certainly not attempting to guilt you into tears this evening. If I guilt anyone in this room into tears over any situation, that would simply be acting on your part and manipulation on mine. And that is not good spirituality. However, we do need to be confronted at times about our tears. What is it that makes you cry? What is it that moves your heart and your soul and your emotions and your body to the point that you cry? We cry over movies. We cry when our favorite sports team loses. We cry when they shoot Bambi for crying out loud. But when have we cried over sin? When have we cried over the direction that our children are going? 
What makes you cry? What moves you? How do you react when you see and hear tragedies that are ultimately an offense to God's glory and a shame to God's name and a distress to God's people? But whatever it is, whatever it is, is that you see, that you hear, and that you experience. We need to constantly evaluate. Does it make me cry? He was broken. He was genuinely concerned. That's why he was broken. Compassion for the people of God in trouble and shame. It had overwhelmed his heart. He didn't know what to say. All he could do is sit down and cry. Again, church family, it wasn't about the walls. It was about the people. Sometimes we get so much of that out of sorts, don't we? Oh, I'm guilty of it. Nobody in this room more than me knows how bad we need a building here at Laurel Baptist Church. You ought to see the water flowing through ceiling roofs this afternoon. Knowing where to put people on Sunday mornings. I like it that you're coming on Wednesday nights. I'd like for us to get to the point we don't know where to put them on Wednesday nights. But I want you to know my heart tonight, as much as God knows what we need, it is not about the buildings. It's not about the programs. It's not about the ministries. It's about the people. The people. It's about making sure that you keep yourself pure. It's making sure that you ride the road of holiness. It's making sure that you live for the gospel. It makes sure that you stay away from Satan's attacks in your life. He's crying not because of walls. He's crying because people are in trouble. Does that even move us when we see our brothers and sisters in a place of tragedy? Oh, this brokenness, this weeping and mourning. Look at verse 4. It went on for days. For days, it says in verse 4. It not only moved him to cry over their circumstance, it moved him to cry out to God about their circumstance. Verse 4 says, I continued in those days, not only weeping, but fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is amazing to me. Nehemiah is so moved by the conditions of others who are 800 miles away from him, yet nestled right here in the center of his heart is the people that he is fasting and praying over. And he prays for God to give them grace and mercy. And this went on for approximately three to four months. I'm going to focus in on that a little bit more next time when we come to chapter 2. But the timeline of events... The month of Kislev, which would have been in the wintertime around the month of December. And by the time that we see the conclusion of this prayer and the events that lead Nehemiah to approach King Artaxerxes in chapter 2, we're talking about a three to four, some even estimate up to a five-month span. We'll be conservative and say somewhere around four months. Four, four months of praying, four months of fasting, four months of mourning, four months of crying. You know, it takes the Spirit of God to create this kind of reaction in our lives, to be honest. In other words, Nehemiah is reacting this way because this is the Spirit of God's reaction toward his people. God grieves over our sin. 
The Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father is praying for us in our darkest and deepest tragedies. He is responding this way because that's how the Spirit of God responds. We can't manufacture that. It's as we submit to the Lord and yield ourselves to His Spirit that His Spirit allows us to see things the way that God sees them. And so here He is praying, praying. Praying, and I, I know, I know you're thinking, you're thinking. Well, here he goes. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna go into all this. And we need to do this when we pray. And here's how often we need to pray. And here's where we need to go when we pray. And here's what we need to say when we pray. No, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just here to challenge you this evening. That when you yield your heart to the moving of the Spirit of God in your lives, and you truly see things the way that God sees things, it ought to move you to pray, to pray. Why don't we pray? I think it was Robert Murray McShane who mentioned this. I tried to find, I tried to find a source. I couldn't find it, but let me just mention to it. We, 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 don't, we don't pray for these three reasons. One, we're self-sufficient. We're self-sufficient. In other words, we don't actually pray. We talk to ourselves because we're self-sufficient. We're self-sufficient. We don't pray. We talk to ourselves. You find that to be true? Now, it's okay to talk to yourselves occasionally. Some of you need to talk yourself down every once in a while. Some of you in certain situations need to tell yourself, um, I don't need to say what I'm thinking. I don't need to say what I'm thinking. It's okay. Hey, by the way, when my soul gets depressed, the psalmist tell us to talk to ourselves, to remind us, preach the gospel to ourselves. Tell us the truth. We, we have to do All right, this is, this is not a prohibition to talking to yourself. Now, I'm not advocating that you go get an imaginary friend that you do life with. But I wonder, do you talk to yourself more than you talk to God? If that's the case, it may be that you're just unaware how completely self-sufficient you are. He said another reason we don't pray is because we're self-satisfied. We don't even recognize an awareness of our need. We, we don't even sense that we need to pray, that we need God, that we actually should cry out to him in these moments of our lives. We're just self-satisfied. We're okay without him. But then he said, some of the reason why we don't pray is because we are self-righteous. And by that he indicates it's because we have no relationship with God at all. And we have no relationship with God because we have no basis, namely the righteousness of Jesus, on which we can even approach God. Our righteousness is in ourselves instead of Christ. Now, Nehemiah understands here that tears alone will not accomplish the blessing of God. So his tears are accompanied by prayer, crying out to God on behalf of Israel's condition. S.D. Gordon said, we can do more than pray after we've prayed, but we can't do more than pray until we've prayed. I wonder how many times we would have spent fewer hours mourning, Fewer days working, 
fewer years worrying if we would have simply prayed. Now let's understand right now before we go any further through Nehemiah's forthcoming ministry that before Nehemiah does anything else from chapter 2 all the way through the end, he first prayed. He first prayed. Seriously tonight, what, what moves you? What interests you? What concerns you? How, do you? how do you react to the ruins of sin and the tragedies of God's people? Are you in the least bit grieved tonight when God's glory is trampled on? He was overwhelmed with brokenness and compassion. And number two, he was concerned for the holiness of God and the honor of God's name in his own life. He was concerned for the holiness of God and the honor of God's name in his own life. Now, we're not going to take apart all the different aspects of Nehemiah's prayer that's recorded here from verse 4 all the way down through verse 11. However, I, I do want to just point out one aspect of Nehemiah's praying over this period of three to four months that we don't need to overlook, specifically the manner in which he approaches God about their sin. Look at what he says in the middle of verse 6. He's, he's praying to God. This is a, not a, not a one-time prayer. This is something he's praying over and over again as he's mourning, as he's weeping, as he's fasting. Three to four months, this is what he's praying. Verse 6, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Now notice this. 800 miles away, not in Jerusalem, not necessarily responsible for the tragedy. But notice what he says, the sins which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We, verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. We. You see, when we become truly concerned for the holiness of God and the honor of God's name among his people, then guess what happens? We'll start confessing our sins. We're really good at confessing other people's sins, aren't we? But have we seen enough of the holiness of God that we begin to confess our own sin? Listen, Nehemiah wasn't there in Jerusalem. He wasn't there when they started intermarrying with unbelievers. He wasn't even alive when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians took Israel into captivity 150 years before this. Yet here he is, so concerned about the holiness of God and the glory of God's name over his people that he immediately acknowledges that he is just as much a guilty sinner as any one of them. He saw the sin of others and immediately it caused him to confess his own sins before the Lord. I was sharing with our, with our, with our leadership before church tonight during our prayer time. Again, I think it's another Robert Murray Machine quote. I don't, I, I'm, 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 I'm giving him the credit for all this. He may not have said any of it. If not, you can just give me credit for it. But I think it was him, and, and sure, uh, of course, our resident scholar could have helped us. I should have just asked him. 
I think it was Robert Murray Machane who said, inside the heart of every one of us, every one of us is the seedbed for any type of sin that's ever been committed. And when we begin to realize that we are capable, we are capable of any kind of sin that has ever been committed, it starts to help us even see ourselves differently. It's not always how you sin, it's how we sin. We sin. He's lumping himself and his family into this group of guilty sinners. And then we see him calling the sin for what it is. He says, look, we've done very corruptly. We've not kept the commandments and statutes of God. That's what confession is, by the way. It's calling our sin by name. It's confessing it for what it is. It's condemning it for what it does. Listen, we have not repented of our sin until we call sin by what it is, confess it for what it does, and condemn it for its existence in our lives. But then, and I'm not going to read the verses, verses 8 down through 10, he acknowledges that this entire circumstance was their fault as a people. You told us, God. You told us that as long as we remembered your word and honored your name, that you would keep covenant. You also told us that if we broke your word and your commands, that we would be scattered as a people. And here we are, scattered as a people, in trouble, under reproach, filled with shame. The city burned, the walls broken. And it's not because of your unfairness to us, God. It's because of our fault. This is our fault. Hey, I want to ask you a question. When you sin and violate the holiness of God, are you quick to excuse it? To blame it on others or to say, no, 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 this is my fault. This is my fault. A godly reaction doesn't excuse it. It doesn't blame it on someone else or something else or pretend it's not even that big of a deal. A godly reaction takes responsibility for violating the holiness of God, confessing sin by name and seeking to restore the glory of God's name among his people. We're talking about a godly reaction to a tragic report. And what does Nehemiah do? He is filled, overwhelmed with brokenness and compassion. He shows his concern for the holiness of God and the honor of God's name in his own life as well as among the people. Let me give you these last two rather quickly. Number three, we notice in verse 11 that he gathered others to pray with him. He gathered others to pray with him. So that, that, that brings us all the way down to verse 11. And by the time we get to this point, the brokenness and compassion of Nehemiah for the people of God, 800 miles away, again, let me remind you of that. It has now spread to a large group of Jewish exiles that are now praying with Nehemiah in Persia for the people of God back in Jerusalem. So verse 11 says, notice this prayer here, O Lord... Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, that's himself, and to the prayer of your servants, plural. So what began as a seeking of God of his own volition, he has now moved a host of Jewish people who fear the name of God, who want the holiness of God restored, who want to see God's grace and mercy poured out upon the city. 
Over this period of three to four months, they have now joined Nehemiah in prayer. It's fascinating, isn't it? That Nehemiah finds a group of Jewish exiles still living in Persia who were likewise concerned for the holiness of God, the glory of God's name. And together, they are praying and have been praying for months that God would forgive, restore, and make his glory known once again. I think this is tremendous leadership on the part of Nehemiah, who wasn't a priest, who wasn't a pastor. Listen, some of us have to rid this idea out of our minds that we can't do certain things for God unless we bear that title. He's a career man. He's a layman. And as a layman, God is fixing to use him to bring revival back to the city of Jerusalem. And he's already doing it in Persia. It's my prayer that God raises up more men and women at Laurel Baptist Church who will move others to focus on the God, on the glory of God. That it'll begin in your homes and move on to your friends and through your discipleship groups and through your ministry teams that your focus on the glory of God will be so contagious that others will just want to jump in and join you in seeking the glory of God with your life. That's what's happening here. Nehemiah's fervency, his leadership, his humility, his desire for the things of God has moved others to want the same. It also shows us, and I'll mention this briefly, that whatever God was planning to do in restoring his people over in Jerusalem, we see that he was already working 800 miles away in Persia through a group of people who had come together in a four-month-long prayer meeting expressing their commitment to God's glory. Isn't it amazing how God is already at work in advance preparing our hearts for that that we don't even know about? So the fourth reaction that we see, and I'll leave you with this. He was willing to be a part of the answer to his prayers. We're talking about godly reactions to tragic reports. He was broken. He was overwhelmed. He was compassionate. He was concerned. He's weeping. He's praying. He's, he's, he's focused on the holiness of God in his own life, the honor of God's name in his own house as well as the people of God. He's, he's gathering others to pray with him. He's leading them to also be moved by what is most important. And now, through his prayer, he's willing to be a part of the answer. We call this availability, right? It's the greatest ability that you and I have. It's the only thing that we can truly offer God. Our availability, every part of ourselves. And when we make ourselves available to God, that, 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 that means that we have to deny ourselves. Perhaps change our priorities, our locations, our jobs, etc. Or, or maybe even giving up some comforts and conveniences that we presently enjoy. But it's the greatest thing we can ever give God. Availability. Notice how he prays in verse 11. This is how he ends it. He says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this Man, 
Now, he's obviously praying for God to provide some type of open door. That's what is meant by success. Don't read into that word as if Nehemiah's praying for a, a promotion or a raise or more money. Or, it's not that. The success is I'm willing to act upon this, God. And if you're in it, I'm asking you to open the right doors, to provide the way. And he says specifically here, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Well, what man? What man? Now we're given a hint in the next line to which we will come to next time in our study. He simply says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, friends, that's what we call the providence of God. God births a desire in the heart of a layman in Persia who is now focused on God's glory being restored 800 miles away, and he actually happens to have a job that puts him in a position to try to do something about it. Some of you are going to go to work tomorrow morning. You think this is just another day. Trying to take care of my family. Trying to save up for retirement. Some of you enjoy what you do. Some of you hate every waking hour. We're going to talk a little bit more about what Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah, really had to do as a cupbearer. It's more than prancing into the king's court with a cup of coffee. But what you do tomorrow morning and what you did today was not just another day in your life. God has put you where he has put you in his providence to fulfill his precise plan and purpose for the gospel in your life. And thankfully, as all of us need to be, Nehemiah was willing to do that. He was willing to do whatever God needed him to do to restore the glory of God's name among his people. He was available. You know what? Even in the church ministry, we need some more available people. Just people willing not to just show up and sit on a pew, but people willing to serve, people willing to help, people willing to teach. So many are doing so much, but yet... Others are kind of waiting around. Maybe tonight your reaction to the needs of ministry around us could be simply, Lord, I'm available, I'm willing. The next time they say, I need this, or we could use somebody here, I'm willing to engage in it. But whatever is the Lord speaking to your heart tonight about, I think we cannot leave Nehemiah 1 without examining our reactions. Our reactions to tragic reports. And then asking the Lord to give us godly reactions. To be more broken. To be more concerned about His holiness in our lives. Some of us have just gotten too comfortable you have found whatever loophole you could find in the Bible to make you feel better about your indulgences 
And you know where you sit tonight. It is putting you in compromising positions that is leading you to great sin. Where does it start? It starts when we get too comfortable. We get our eyes off of the holiness of God and the honor of his name in our own life and we embrace and we engage and we indulge and the next thing you know it, we are so far away from God we don't even recognize ourselves. When we hear of tragedy, may God lead us to move others to join us in our pursuit of his holiness. And may every single one of us be willing and available. Lord, if I'm the answer, if I'm the one that you want to use to accomplish this, I'm willing. I'm available. Give me success and provision. Open the door. And may you lead me in front of whoever I must stand. And may God help us. Because tomorrow morning you may receive a report you were not expecting. May God give us a godly reaction. Let's stand together for prayer.